From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. I'm Kyle Stokes, in for Larry Mantle. Good morning. Hollywood has a green light to resume film and TV production today. We talk with KPCC's John Horn about what the film and television industry has done to prepare and with an infectious disease expert to put Hollywood's return into the context of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Plus, are you ready for a weekend at a museum, the zoo, or an outdoor pool? We'll take a look ahead at the weekend of reopenings. And later, did you know the Los Angeles Unified School District runs its own law enforcement agency and it's bigger than the city of Pasadena's police department. Now, activists want to disband the L.A. school police, revisiting the role of police on public school campuses, coming up this morning on AirTalk, right after the news. Oh, good morning to you. It's AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. I am Kyle Stokes. Glad to be with you all. Hope you've had a good week. I'll be in for Larry Mantle today and on Monday. But Larry didn't leave for his long weekend without first speaking with Film Week critics Claudia Puig and Amy Nicholson. That's coming your way an hour from now, as always, on Film Week. And you'll also hear a conversation with Judd Apatow speaking about his new film, The King of Staten Island. And later this hour on Air Talk, should public schools continue to station police officers on campus? That topic is coming up. But we will begin with a weekend of reopenings amid the coronavirus pandemic. L.A. County says fitness facilities, gyms, they can reopen today. So can hotels for leisure travel. So can campgrounds, RV parks, outdoor pools, museums and galleries, zoos and aquariums. But we will begin with the most impactful reopening of them all, arguably Hollywood. Film, television, music production can resume in L.A. County. That means hundreds of thousands of people who work in those fields can potentially be getting back to work if you're one of them. We would like to hear from you. Costumers, makeup artists, hairdressers, cinematographers, writers, directors, actors, tech crews, give us a call. 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. The AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Are you ready to get back on the set? In just a moment, we're going to be joined by one of our regular infectious disease specialists to take any of the questions that you might have about what are the risks potentially involved and potentially what are some things that are safe to begin doing again on film sets across L.A. County. Again, 866-893-KPCC. We'd like to hear from you. The AirTalk page, kpcc.org, or tweet us at AirTalk on Twitter. With me is KPCC's John Horn, the host of our arts and entertainment show, The Frame. John, good to have you with us. Happy to you, Kyle. It's great to great to be with you. So, John, I was listening back about a month ago. You were on this very show, and when this was all still very uncertain, you said Hollywood execs really feel they can only reopen once. How has Hollywood prepared for this moment? John, we lose you? I don't know. I, I can hear <laughs> There I am. There you are. I'm sorry this about that. This is like that. a bad Zoom call. Well, See, it th- shouldn't this is, be. You know. <laughs> uh, because as we're speaking, I'm at the gym with some sweaty other people. I'm going to head over to a public swimming pool, and then I'm going to go to the multiplex. 
I'm kidding, <laughs> but that's the point. Just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. And I think the issue right now is that as eager as producers are to get back to work, those lines are actually accurate. You can only reopen or restart once. And I think we're all we're seeing that across the country right now, that maybe a lot of places have jumped the gun. So what has happened over the past couple of weeks, there have been a series of things that have come out. First of all, about two weeks ago, Hollywood industry leaders, that was guilds and a group organized by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, put out a 22-page working white paper about what safe guidelines might look like for film production. Then late last week, state officials said that filming could resume as soon as this coming weekend if local authorities, meaning L.A. County health officials approved. Then that last piece fell into place on Wednesday when the L.A. County Department of Public Health gave Hollywood, I guess, a flashing green light to start the cameras rolling again as soon as this weekend. The problem is... As I said earlier, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And the real issue now for actors, for hair and makeup people, for directors, for editors, is at what point are there going to be rules that cover every production? And right now, they're not. Yeah. I mean, you read the guidelines. uh, You know, the white paper speaks to this. So do the L.A. County guidelines that are said. But one of the things, the details that stood out to me and I think illuminates the scope of the problem was the line from the L.A. County guidelines that, quote, all wigs, wigs like hair or other shared prosthetics must be disinfected after each use. And, John, I mean, that sort of illustrates the extent of the problem here. Everything about this industry involves contact. It does, and especially actors who are speaking to each other, not wearing masks. So that's one problem. And then on any movie set, you might have, you know, 60 people in a closed space working in close proximity. Uh, Now, what does social distancing look like? How do you treat surfaces? How do you treat food? And I took a look this morning. There are a series of guidelines that have come out from different regions and different guilds. So I talked about this 22-page white paper that was issued by uh, some Hollywood guilds and producers. Britain has a 44-page working guideline. The local cinematographers have an 11-page series of guidelines. The local editor's union has 13 pages. The state of Georgia has 10 pages. If you try to start overlapping these things and see where they agree and see where they disagree, it's a minefield because a lot of people can't decide on what the minimum standard should be. I'm going to give you one example. This is about testing. Here's what Britain says. Cast or crew who have been in close contact, less than two meters, so about six feet, with a suspected case will need to self-isolate. If testing proves negative, self-isolation will no longer be required. Here's what the 22-page working uh, white paper said. Regular periodic testing of cast and crew for COVID-19 is critical for a safe return to work. Universal symptom monitoring, including temperature screening, may be used to further mitigate risk. So you have one saying if you're in close contact with a suspected case, you have to self-isolate. The other says you have to monitor. And Kyle, you know well, you can be coronavirus positive and not be symptomatic. So. It's a very complicated series of sometimes conflicting advice 
that Hollywood and other you know states and governments are putting out. Right. Tony in West Covina says, I'm a costume designer and I'm completely ready to go back to work as long as I wear a mask and we do social distancing as much as we can. I'm not worried. If you want to weigh in as well, you work in Hollywood. Production is now getting a what our, our guest John Horn says is a flashing green light to resume production today. Give us a call. Give us your thoughts. Are you ready to get back to work or do you think that more safety protocols, maybe some uh, resistance resolutions of the disagreements that John Horn is outlining here need to be reached. 866-893-KPCC. Again, the phone number to reach us is 866-893-5722. Go to the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Tweet us. At AirTalk is our handle on Twitter. We're also joined by Dr. Peter Chin Hong, an infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, thank you so much for being back with us on AirTalk. My pleasure, Kyle. I'm curious to know what your overall assessment of public health conditions are. I mean, this is such a big industry that affects, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Are we ready for this kind, this, you know, an industry of this size to reopen? Well, I think it's a very uh, complicated issue just because there's such heterogeneity of settings. You know, you can have a small production where you can control your environment a lot more, and then you can have a production that's in the hundreds of people. And I think, you know, I agree with John that it's it's going to be very challenging. And I think with certain things in place, though, I think one can monitor and, and follow and, and then scale back, get ready to scale back if things look like they're going to be outbreaks or, or so on. So I think people have to be on the lookout um, if, if they do decide to rejoin. And I think at some point, people are anxious. You know, they've been losing dollars. California has been particularly hard hit with the economics. So I think it's understandable why people feel anxious on, on one hand. Yeah. The reopening of Hollywood, Dr. Chin Hong, involves, you know, so many other states. And John references that there are multiple governments issue interested in issuing different sets of guidelines for reopening. I, I mean, I'm thinking about that involves potentially Angelinos traveling all over the country for production, you know, the, the spike in cases in the mm-hmm. Sun Belt and how many film jobs there are in Georgia. I mean, can you give us an overview of, of the public health health conditions nationwide and, and whether those should also be a concern to us here? Totally. So I think when Angelinos go to other parts of the country, it's you're going to have very differential risks. So if you go to Georgia, it's probably going to be a little bit risk, less risky than going to North Carolina, which is kind of raging right now. You know, Los Angeles itself uh, is having, you know, surge of cases, but not as bad as Arizona, where they're, where, you know, it's threatening to sort of reach the threshold for hospital resources right now. So again, there's differential risk around the country. I mean, I think the Northeast with New York, New Jersey, that kind of been stable for some time now. Uh, but again, things are changing. And I think uh, when people travel, they have to look at what's going on in that particular community to gauge your risk. And also, you know, assessing your employer COVID IQ and what kind of conditions they have in place to protect employees. 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Want to hear your thoughts on reopening Hollywood. If you're a performer, a member of a crew, a writer, we want to hear from you, whatever your role is in Hollywood and whether you're ready to get back to work. And I want to turn back to John Horn of our arts and entertainment show, The Frame. John, can you underscore the, the, you know, the, the impact of 
of this on the local economy. I mean, how much of this industry is working right now? I, it, it would, you know, seem to me that it wouldn't be that many. And, you know, there are potentially some people who are kind of champing at the bit to get back to work. No, it's been devastating. And it's not just people who work in front of the camera. Think about the kind of the ancillary businesses. Like you might have a catering company. You might have a rental company that does props or costumes or things like that. Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people are out of work. And you start thinking about performers, for example, not, you know, the Tom Cruises and Julia Roberts of the world, but kind of like, you know, a lower tier working actor who might be out auditioning for for pieces. His or her side gig might be waiting tables or tending bar. That job has gone away as well. So you have people who are not only lost their main source of income, but their side gigs might have gone away as well. And I think that's part of what the pressure is right now. People are so eager to get back to work. But I was talking with somebody at SAG-AFTRA earlier before we got on the call. They they represent more than 100,000 actors, and I should add radio performers like you and me. right. But they said their members are not going to sign off on a production until they are confident that they can go back to work safely. And that safety is going to depend on uniform guidelines where everybody knows what the rules are. And it's like, you know, think about going to a restaurant and some restaurants are going to have social distancing. The waiters are going to have masks and gloves. And you go to another restaurant where their tables are up next to each other and the waiters are as if it were, you know, 1999. How are you going to feel? You need to know that everything is going to be the same and that the protocols are going to be uniform and we're not there yet. And yet so many people are struggling so badly because they haven't been able to work for the past you know, three months. Joel on Twitter writes, I'm a dialect coach and already do lots of prepping of actors via Zoom. I'm looking forward to continuing that and getting busier again and will consider going on set again. Consider going on set again, I should emphasize, giving the appropriate, given that the appropriate guidelines are followed. Uh, let's go to the phones now and Greg, who's joining us from Burbank. Greg, you're on air talk. Hey, I think it's irresponsible to talk about reopening the industry right now. There's no way to do it safely. And without widespread contact tracing and testing that we were promised, it's just not it's not doable. It's irresponsible to even talk about it at this point. Greg, what is your role in Hollywood? Well, I'm a, what they call the below the line. I, I work in the crew. And and so what what kinds of contact with other people would you have while you're on the crew, while you're on the set? Uh, I mean, it, it's varied, but it, it's, it's constant. You can't work on a show without coming into constant contact with other people, whether you are in a vehicle with them, whether you are in a room with them, whether you are eating next to them. Uh, you know, it goes way beyond just what we've discussed about actors interacting with each other. You are in constant close contact with 100, 200 other people uh, on, a, on a regular basis. It's just unavoidable. Greg, I appreciate your perspective. Dr. Peter Chin Hong with us from UCSF Medical Center. Uh, you, I think we're hearing about this in a lot of different industries, the concern that uh, testing and, you know, if testing isn't available, um, you're sort of left with these with sort of, you know, the next best thing, which is, are you having symptoms? Is that a good enough of, of a standard to, to allow us to, to consider reopening? No, it probably isn't the best indicator. We know from more and more evidence now, despite what the WHO said, which they later retracted, that asymptomatic transmission of people with very mild symptoms are actually a thing. You know, it's 
estimated in some studies to be as much as 60 to 80 percent of transmissions just because people are not expecting to protect themselves. And we do know that people have, who have no symptoms uh, who are infected can actually have pretty high viral loads that they're transmitting. And if you're in a, a set and you're shouting or you're projecting your voice, you can project that virus potentially further. Rebecca in Hollywood has a written comment. I'm a production assistant. I don't see how it's possible to reopen safely because as a PA, I have my hands on everything and there's not really space to social distance. I'm wondering whether the document put out by the film industry is realistic. And if we question the safety, should we just individually choose not to go back to work? Uh, Actually, that's a good question. Dr. Chin Hong, what do you think? Well, I think, again, it depends on what precautions your the employer has in place. And I, I do believe that employers have a, a responsibility for their employees. And, and, and we think about the same concepts as, say, a restaurant or when we think about reopening the workplace. Of course, as you pointed out, on a set, you're talking about a large number of people, which, again, makes me nervous. But say it's a small set, for argument's sake, and you're able to have a bubble of a small group of people working on something. Does the employer have screening that's appropriate? I think for general screening, you know, having temperature checks and symptom checks are probably okay as a first pass. Then people should wear masks as much as possible. You know, we can divide up and be reductionist in terms of the two main things people do, masks and surfaces, um, masks or social distance and surfaces. So ma- keeping your nose and mouth away from somebody else's nose and mouth is probably the most important thing mm. because you can always wash your hands. You don't have to clean your iPhone every 10 seconds. So I think you kind of have to keep your eyes on the prize. And if the employer has a good culture where if you're not, if you're feeling sick, you don't show up to work. If there is like information of where free testing is available for employees and they don't have to use the insurance or pay out of pocket. And if there's enough contact tracing, like someone had brought up before, I think those elements are crucial to have in place before we kind of, you know, launch into this. Yeah, get get too far ahead of ourselves. We'll continue this conversation about reopening, uh, a lot of different reopenings that are happening this weekend, but perhaps the most consequential economically is the reopening of Hollywood film and television production, getting the sort of cautionary green light to roll through the stop sign, implement some precautions and resume production. We'll continue our conversation and potentially touch on some of the other aspects of the film industry, like, you know, the consumer end of the film industry, Coming up right after a short break on Air Talk. We're live on 89.3 KPCC. We are streaming on your smart speaker. You can ask your smart speaker of the Google or Amazon variety to play KPCC. Whatever device you're listening to us on the program is the same. It's AirTalk. Kyle Stokes in for Larry Mantle. And we're talking about reopening Hollywood. Not only can film and television production resume music production as well, uh, but the consumer-facing side of the film industry does have a sort of, in some parts of our region, a tentative green light to reopen. L.A. County has not allowed movie theaters to reopen, but the state has given the green light to allow movie theaters to reopen. So that means means Orange County, Riverside County, San Bernardino, those film those audiences will be able to go to movie theaters this weekend, though capacity will be limited. With me is KPCC's John Horn, the host of our arts and entertainment show, The Frame. And John, I, I mean, I guess I'm wondering how big a deal it is for the film industry that these theaters be allowed to reopen. 
Well, it's a big deal for the exhibitors, but the problem is a lot of the guidelines that are in place now limit the number of people who can go into a theater. Right now, it's 25%. So if you're a movie theater owner, you have to tape off or not sell three out of every four seats. And if you're turning on the lights and bringing in staff and, you know, staffing up, you really can't make that much money if you're only selling a quarter of your available inventory. The other huge problem is most of the studios have shifted their major releases either out of the summer or moving them to different platforms. You talked about Judd Apatow, who's going to be on the show later. Uh, His movie, uh, The King of Staten Island, was supposed to be a theatrical release. Universal, his studio, is putting it on video on demand platforms starting this weekend. The, The studio did the same thing with Trolls World Tour. Theater owners were so upset, they said a couple of major chains, they will never show another Universal movie. Yeah. I don't think that's really going to be true. Right. But these companies have been really hit hard. They went from a multi-billion dollar business to zero income overnight, and they haven't had any revenues for the past three months. So theater owners are desperate for content. It's not going to be for another month until we get big studio releases. Christopher Nolan's Tenant is supposed to open July 17th. And then the live action version of Mulan from Disney is coming out July 24th. So you have those big studio movies. Maybe theaters are at 50% capacity then. And I guess since nothing else is playing, you could put a movie in like eight auditoriums if you wanted to. But if you're a moviegoer and there's different polls about this, would you feel safe? Going back to the movies, even if you're wearing a mask, even if there's social distancing, what is it going to look like getting into the auditorium? It feels a lot like maybe, you know, students crowding into a college lecture. How do you get through the door? You want to get your popcorn. How do you know that it's prepared safely? Yeah. Are your seats clean? Is your cup holder clean? Yeah. They talk about like removable covers on seats, which is certainly, a, you know, not necessarily a comforting thought when you're going in to watch Trolls 2. So, um, well, you can uh, watch that at home. You, <laughs> you watch could watch that at home. At home. Uh, TOHL from Irvine uh, emailed us, we cannot go through another one-size-fits-all lockdown without devastating economic consequences. So when people can easily get N95 masks, they will be able to protect themselves. And those who choose not to wear masks will feel to fr- feel free to pass the virus among themselves. Uh, Jim in Hollywood says, I work in the industry and I want to point out that hairstylists will move around different sets every day of the week, and that is so worrisome. Uh, let me turn to our guest, Peter Chin Hong, who's the infectious disease specialist and a professor of medicine at UCSF Medical Center. One other you know, major aspect of the film industry that announced reopening plans this week was Disneyland, uh, the, uh, announcing that parks would reopen later in uh, about a month from now with sort of a, a tiered steps of, of different reopening. That's a huge uh, part, you know, economic boon potentially, but there's also a lot of mixed feelings about whether or not Disneyland should reopen. Um, big deal for the film and entertainment industry to have that in-person aspect of their revenue sort of portfolio open, Dr. Chin Hong. But I mean, from a safety perspective, what do you think? I feel very nervous about Disneyland. I mean, if we are nervous about the film and entertainment industry and opening sets up again, that's you can consider that much more controlled than Disneyland. Disneyland is almost like the Wild West. It's like a playground. People are running by. You can't control the behavior of other families or other kids that are running by. And I, I, I get nervous about that. The, the, you know, the 
non less risky parts about Disneyland compared to a set of is of course much of it is outdoors, which is going to be better for disease potential transmission. But again, you go into you know Space Mountain or like an indoor ride. You're bunch, around a bunch of people who may or may not be wearing masks. People are screaming. They're shouting. Right. Um, and that's going to be very risky. Yeah. I, we're talking about the, the film industry reopening, but just to underscore that there are other reopenings taking place potentially this weekend. The county, the Los Angeles County, has given the go-ahead for hotels for leisure travel to reopen. Professional sports are able to reopen this weekend, though without live audiences. Gyms are able to reopen in L.A. County, recommended, though, by the county that they implement a reservation system for the facility that would allow for some pre-screening of guests and about 50% occupancy in those gyms. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, before we move on to our next segment, I just want to take a quick second to ask you about uh, the comment that we got just a second ago about masks. In Orange County, the public health officer there was recently recently resigned over uh, her over criticism that she, uh, Dr. Nicole Quick, uh, implemented a, a mandatory mask wearing policy. She recently resigned. And yesterday, the county announced they were backing off making masks mandatory. I, I'm curious to, to know your reaction to that decision by Orange County to back off mandatory masks. I'm really disappointed about that. The more and more evidence we get as public health, uh, you know, in the public health world, the more confidence we have in, in community masking. And, and there's a lot of ecological data from countries who have instituted uh, community masking, like Hong Kong, some of the, many of the Asian countries. They're, they're adjusted uh, disease incidence is much lower the more you wear masks as a community. You know, we can social distance all we want or try to, but as you can see, it's very, very challenging. It's very different in different situations. People can talk they can transmit the virus further. People shout, they scream. Uh, that without even having a cough, you can transmit the virus further. So I think the more we think about it, masking is really like uh, being embraced more and more as something that's more fail uh, safe and something that wouldn't require somebody always being attentive about you know that social distance, which of course is really difficult to do. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, an infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center. He tweets at PCH underscore SF. Dr. Chin Hong, thank you again for joining us on AirTalk. Thanks so much, Kyle. And the host of KPCC's arts and entertainment show, The Frame, John Horn. He tweets at JG Horn. John, thank you so much for your time. Kyle, I'll see you at the Matterhorn in two years. <laughs> oh, boy. And on Space Mountain, we'll go or a Splash Mountain or something like that. We'll, we'll, I'll wear my swimsuit. Thanks for your time. Back in a second on Air Talk. When you hear activists saying defund the police, they don't always mean close down the police department. Sometimes it only means take some funding from law enforcement and give it to social service programs. But in schools, the debate is turning out to be different. In the wake of George Floyd's killing by police, activists are now questioning whether officers should be stationed on school campuses at all. Actually, the L.A. Unified School District runs its own police force of more than 400 sworn officers. But a campaign to completely shut down the L.A. School Police Department has been gathering some steam. Activists are following the lead of the school district in Minneapolis, which recently canceled its police contract. So have the Portland and Denver school 
systems. And activists in Chicago, New York, and San Francisco are pushing their school systems to consider doing the same, though unlike in L.A., none of these school districts operate their own police forces. So potentially the task here could be a little bit more complicated. With me is a member of the group that first began calling for the uh, dialing down of the L.A. school police force. Maya Edwards is a senior at Venice High School. I should say was a senior at Venice High School because she graduated yesterday. Congratulations, Maya. Thank you so much. (laughs) And she is also a member of Students Deserve, which is an LAUSD student-led activist group working towards making Black Lives Matter in schools and has been critical over the years of L.A. school police, uh, but until recently has not yet called for the shutting down of the school police department. But that changed recently, Maya. Why is your group now calling for the end of the L.A. school police department? That is changing because right now we're and very much inspired by Black Lives Matter, the movement, and just seeing Black people being killed and everything, it's time for us to follow through what we believe and really just get rid of the police. What have been your interactions with police at at Venice High School when you were a student there? Personally, I have no interaction with the police at my school. I've never spoken to them, but we do have a station of police on campus. They do you what do you feel um is the importance of, of dialing back? Why would you why do you feel it's important to dial back their presence on campus? I My, feel it's important to dial back on their presence on campus because they are they're not doing much. They're not interacting with students. They don't make students feel safe. Many students, black and brown students, do not trust the police because when we see them in our communities arresting our brothers and sisters and murdering our brothers and sisters, we don't feel safe with them in our schools. Appreciate your thoughts, Maya Edwards, a senior from Venice High School, uh, also a member of the group Students Deserve, an LAUSD student-led activist group who's working toward making Black Lives Matter in schools. Uh, Following their call, uh, the powerful teachers union of of Los Angeles Unified teachers and social workers and nurses and other uh, on-campus workers uh, is now considering joining the call of Students Deserve to uh, remove L.A. school police from campuses. And the leader of that union, the current president, Alex Caputo-Pearl, joins us now. Alex, welcome to Air Talk. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Kyle. So let's, first of all, before we go too deep into this, just maybe we can clarify, the board of directors of UTLA voted to support this position, but this isn't necessarily the union's official position yet to to, uh, remove police from schools? Right. So I've been a teacher for 22 years in South L.A. I want to honor Maya and all the students who have done incredible leadership uh, over the last years. And what's happening, like Maya said, is out of an outrage of the police murder of George Floyd, there's an inspiring movement that has come up. And it's every one of our responsibility to look at the institutions that we're in, particularly in LAUSD, where we're 88 percent students of color and we serve the largest black student population in California. We've got to look at um, how we're treating black students and black families. So our board of directors, as you said, Kyle, voted 35 to 2 for the elimination of the L.A. School Police Department. 
Um, it has to go to the UTLA House of Representatives, which is our highest policymaking body, which involves some hundreds of, of uh, members. And so we're in a process of member dialogue right now. But the motion that the board of directors of UTLA passed says that that money from the elimination of the school police department should be shifted to counselors, to community schools with a focus on schools with black students, um, campus aids, campus security that's on that's unarmed, gang intervention, peer mediation, things that are well-researched to keep schools safe. And as you said, Minneapolis, Portland, you didn't mention Richmond, uh, here in California has gotten police out of schools. Oakland may take that step in the next couple of weeks. This is $70 million for this department. This is the largest school police force in the country. And over the last 10 years, while crime has gone down and mental health supports in schools have been cut, we've seen a 15% increase in the school police force. Um, so we've really got to look at that um, as folks who are involved in schooling. Um, we've been involved, we've confronted the school police on a number of things over the years. Uh, they used to give out tickets to students who were late, which was an atrocious practice that brought students into the legal system when they didn't have to be for non-criminal behavior. We had to press the L.A. school police along with community organizations who have done great work on this over the years, black-led organizations. We had to press them to get rid of a tank that they had gotten from the federal government and automatic rifles that they had gotten from the federal government. We had to press them to stop the practice of random searches, and we're currently helping students deserve press on stopping pepper spray, which is considered a chemical weapon and is not able to be used in juvenile halls, but is able to be used in LAUSD schools. I go through that to say that over the years of those struggles, those should not have been difficult things to decide, to not use those kind of practices on children. And yet it was a struggle with the L.A. School Police Department. It's not because of any individual in that department. It's because the institution of policing has a mindset that we now need to make sure is not in our schools. And it's not a criticism of individual folks. Uh, these are folks who we care about. These are human beings on the police force. But the institution of policing is not appropriate in schools. Yeah, I just want to open up the phones here uh, before we go to break here to uh, hear from you and your thoughts from parents, from teachers, from students. Do you think that school police should be stationed on campus or should, as uh, Alex Caputo-Pearl and the UTLA Board of Directors is arguing, uh, that this money should be shifted into other programs on campuses like social services, uh, counseling, other mental health supports? Give us a call and Share your thoughts. 866-893-KPCC. We'll take your calls after the break. That's 866-893-5722. You can share them on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Go on Twitter. You can tweet at me, KY Stokes, or at AirTalk and share your thoughts on the idea of removing school police from campus. A quick break, and then we'll be right back on AirTalk. talking about the idea of removing school police officers from campus as a nationwide wave of activism 
calling for a rethinking of the role of police in our society, continues and now washes up on the shores of our school districts. There's a movement afoot to potentially dissolve the L.A. School Police Department, one of the largest independent law enforcement agencies in the country that only covers a school district. And we're getting your thoughts as well. We'd love to hear your calls at 866-893-KPCC on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. few of you have already tweeted at me. We heard from Ayala Marine on Twitter. Who's going to keep the kids safe as they cross the crosswalks? At Huntington Park Elementary, I've seen parents in a rush pass the crossing guard's hand stop sign, but when the L.A. school police there or even the squad car, they all drive safe. On the other hand, we've heard from uh, teachers and parents like Angie on Twitter who said, I wholeheartedly support defunding the police. We need to continue teacher and staff training and moving towards all campuses being welcoming and safe spaces for learning. With me discussing this topic is the president of UTLA, Alex Caputo-Pearl. And Alex, I'm curious to know, you know, what you would say to sort of the the folks like uh, Ayala Marine, whose comment I just read. There are some basic safety needs on campus that I think, you know, if you pull police out, that parents might feel uncomfortable without someone there whose job it is to handle those safety considerations. What should what should we be doing uh, about ensuring safety uh, on on uh, on campuses if the idea is to remove police from the equation? Yeah, critical question. I, I think one is we, we look at the stats. Eight percent of students in LAUSD are black. Twenty-five percent of the arrests the school police have done are black students. Twenty-five percent of those arrests are elementary and middle school students, if you can believe that. Um, the, we know that black students, like Maya said, because of what they experience in their community, are actually often traumatized by police presence on campus. A Tulane University uh, study that was recently done confirms that. Um, We know that there's 14 million students across the United States, 14 million, who have a police officer on their campus but don't have a counselor, a nurse, a psychologist, or a social worker. Now, on the safety question that you brought up, Kyle, um, there's no evidence that schools are safer because police are based in the schools. Rutgers University did a study on this recently, the Justice Policy Institute. Uh, Rutgers and University of Maryland actually did a study that shows that schools are less safe because having police presence in um, schools and communities of color breaks trust between adults and students, and students are much less likely to go to adults to tell them about peers who are having problems or things like that. We know that in terms of school shootings, um, school police have not stopped school shootings. Eighty-five percent of the recent large shootings at schools have been at schools that have armed police officers based there. So it is not a deterrent. Eighty-five percent of them happen there. So safety happens through love and support and recognizing black lives and recognizing um, the racism that we have institutionally put put down on our campuses by um, having police but not having essential services. So crosswalk, yes, but also counselors, community schools, aides, security aides, people hired from the community who are respected as campus aides, these things matter. 
Maya Edwards is with us, also a student uh, who is an organizer and Students Deserve, a recent graduate of Venice High School. And Maya, I mean, if you think about some of the needs that police officers are asked to respond to on campuses, for instance, if there's a fight on campus, police officers might respond to that sometimes, school police officers. Would you be comfortable if, if, it was, if you didn't have a police officer responding to a fight if, there, if it were to break out on your high school campus? Yes, if police were not there trying to break up a fight on my school campus and it was a campus aide who I trust and I see every single day and I've spoken to and they know who I am, then I would be very much more comfortable. And I think my peers would be a lot more comfortable and safe with them because with them we build trust. I'm curious, the other thing that Students Deserve has spent a lot of time advocating about are the random search policy. Alex Caputo-Pearl mentioned that just a minute ago. Uh, The random search policy is the idea that every single day high school students are searched. The searches are done by administrators. Sometimes police are there. Uh, how have you witnessed these searches? Have you experienced these searches uh, in your school or personally? Yes, I have. I've experienced them in middle school and in high school. They come into our classroom and they usually tell them, okay, pick every um, seventh student on your roster. And so we're all waiting like nervously because we all are thinking that we're doing something wrong. And eventually like they pick the people and usually it's the same people that get picked out most of the time. So even though they say it's random, it doesn't seem random because it's always the same people no matter what. Maya Edwards, a senior at Ven- a recent graduate. I keep saying senior at Venice High School. You're a recent graduate of Venice High School, and congratulations. Thank you for joining us here on Air Talk as we talk about school police. Many on Twitter have also mentioned the random search policy. Sid on Twitter said uh, that she felt that students were picked and that they were not done randomly. The kids in AP and magnet classes didn't go through it quite as often as regular students. So yes, take police out of schools, Sid on Twitter says. Let them patrol outside to prevent school shootings, but get them out of schools. Let's turn now for some response and an alternate perspective to Gil Gomez, who's the president of the L.A. School Police Association. That is the union that represents the officers who are patrolling L.A. Unified School campuses, or I should say are stationed at L.A. School campuses. Gil, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. How are you doing, Kyle? Thank you for inviting me. I'm curious if you would if you would take first of all the idea uh, some time to respond to the the concerns that that are raised about disproportionate impacts of searches and police pr- presence. There is a study from the UCLA Bunch Center uh, that I believe Alex Caputo Pearl referenced uh, about how more arrests are conducted or or contacts, not just arrests, citations against black students disproportionately. You know, twenty five percent of the arrests are of black students, even though black students are only of 8%. Th- that seems, you know, sort of to undergird the argument of a lot of people who say that black students on campus feel targeted by school police. Wow, where to start? Well, first of okay. all, um, let, let me tell you about the, the, the day-to-day school police activities. Uh, school police uh, provide safe passages um, to and from school, and school police respond to the needs of their community, which are the L.A. Unified School Districts. So one would have you suggest that school police officers are driving around targeting individuals and trying to arrest them. That is not the case. Over 80% of the calls that we get are called from uh, deans, the, the administrators, when they have a, when, so when a teacher has an individual that they think committed a crime or 
or is disruptive in some fashion, they send them to the dean's office, the administrative offices. Um, when, when the educators find out that a crime might have been taking place, possession of a weapon, drugs, um, and so forth, they call the school police officer. So the school police officer is called in as a resource to protect uh, the school district, and they are called in when, when the administrative staff and the, the dean, which is actually uh, an elected uh, member of the UTLA, the teaching staff, when they cannot handle the issue and they need a, they need a police officer. So I, I, I believe that one might have you think that the school police officers are trolling around trying to arrest people. No, they are called in over 80 percent of the time. Yeah. Um, I- And just to note some of the statistics in that Bunch Center study, I believe from memory, I believe that there were something like 8,000 contacts. There are something like 470,000 students in LAUSD. So it's so that I mean, it's it's worth putting those numbers into some context. Yes, correct. And and I I heard Alex saying I'm sure he's quoting just from a study because he didn't do the study himself. But they said he said that 25 percent of all arrests are done on elementary school students. No, the, the it is the study even said, and, and I didn't have any hands in the study, but the study says that 25 percent of all elementary school and middle school students um, result in LA, uh, I'm sorry, school police arrest and diversion. Yeah. So to sit there and to omit that the idea that um, middle school students were part of that, it would it would make people think that school police, you know, drives around trying to arrest elementary school students when really there's been, I believe, four arrests in the, the recent years. And I've, I've seen one of the arrests, and one of the, the poor children stabbed the other child. Police officers don't arrest children um, unless there's a, as a, they only do that as a last result. Gil Gomez is the president of the L.A. School Police Association, and we're talking about the idea of removing the L.A. School Police Department from LAUSD campuses. And we're taking your calls and questions as well. Give us a call, 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. We'll continue the conversation after a one-minute break. Stay with us on AirTalk. talking about the idea of potentially removing the L.A. School Police Department from LAUSD. That is the independent law enforcement agency that LAUSD itself operates, uh, which is a, a police department of its own right. It's not the LAPD patrolling LAUSD campuses. It's its own police department that actually rivals the size of the force in Pasadena. And the head of their officers union, Gil Gomez, is joining us to discuss the idea. We'll take some of your calls and comments in just a second. But Gil, I just wanted to you know, sort of reset this conversation here. Why is it that that LAUSD has its own police department. I mean, like, what's the what's the case for a school district employing a, a police force of the size and scope that that this school district has? Well, well for starters, uh, LAUSD is the second largest school uh, district in the United States, and the LA school police budget is less than less than one percent of the district's budget. When you break that down, you know, it breaks down to less than ninety dollars a year per student to protect children. So the LA School Police is a protective unit. To, to pretend that society doesn't have its own problems and that, they, that we don't need police officers is, is ridiculous. And I don't want to alarm people, but on any given year, over 30 rifles, um, handguns, and shotguns are recovered as a result of um, 
people trying to commit harm on LAUSD schools to the the, the students and uh, the staff. Is it is it clear that those weapons are brought on campus by students? There's an excess to students. There's a, some of them are brought on campus by students. Some of them are found at the student's home because of a, a, a criminal threat done against a student or the school itself. And our, and our officers go outside to the home and investigate. And yes, there is a nexus to the students. I want to go to the phones here quickly and take some comments uh, with the limited time we have left here. Uh, let's go first uh, to Omar in Hawthorne. Omar, you're on AirTalk. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hi. As a teacher um, in South Central LA, uh, there aren't any police officers currently, or there weren't any police officers at my school. Uh, but I did notice that there is a quite a, a frequency of calling police officers from my school. So there might be a focus of retraining deans um, and administration on how to handle that. So I think that students should feel um, so they shouldn't be uh, targeted or quickly responding like that. Um, additionally, I think that it's important to restore the relationship with cops. So maybe instituting like a, a program at every single school where you have coffee with a cop or something of that nature. So that relationships with cops uh, become better. But no, police officers should not be on campuses because students aren't feeling safe with them around. Omar, thank you so much for your call. Let's go next to Paul in Redondo Beach. Paul, you're on AirTalk. I taught for over 30 years, and my experience with LA school police was they were useless. Uh, if it was something like marijuana or something else, they said, well, you're, you're the teacher. You, you deal with it. We'll wait till there's a gun or a knife. And when there were guns on knives on campus, it's like, where's the, where's the LA police? Oh, well, they're, they're in their office. You know, they're, they're, they're having a chat with each other. But by and large, they, they were useless. It's a good old boys club. When you complain to one, another one would say, oh, we're not going to help you out with your car vandalism. You go deal with it. Yeah. Um, I, I never understood the expense. Yeah, which is about $70 million a year is, is the cost of the police department. Paul, thank you for your, your comment. Gil, would you like to respond to that, to that uh, comment from Paul? Um, yes. Um, I, I'm not going to tell him he didn't experience what he experienced. But I, I'm sure uh, I'm sure that uh, there is a huge push to defund police officers, and I know that there's a small percentage of individuals. Listen, the most important thing right now is protecting children. And when you have a teachers' union going behind their teachers' backs, their unions' uh, memberships' backs, and implementing some sort of change to push to remove the protective agency that they have on their campus, it is it is in the union world, it's appalling. Um, so I, I believe UTLA needs to poll its members, its members individually, to see if, if UTLA should be making schools um, not as safe for the students and the staff that serves them. Yeah. So I, 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 I find it um, despicable that the union president uses a horrible situation, such as what happened last year, I'm sorry, last week in the United States, in regards to Mr. George Floyd and the civil unrest. I feel sorry for the family. But for UTLA to use that as an opportunity to push a political agenda and to suggest that our police department remotely is like a city police department or the or the officer that that murdered Mr. Floyd is is ridiculous. We have yeah. no Let, homicides. Gil I, Gil, I just want to I want to jump in and, and give and give Alex Caputo Perel a chance to respond to that comment because I mean I think that there's a a question, uh, Mr. Caputo Perel, about uh, about whether there's uh, about how deep within the union this feeling goes and and jumping in with an with the activist push to defund police. Uh, you, you know I think you know there are many people principles 
to name one constituency that that are staunchly in favor of continuing to have police, at least their union is, of having police continue to be on campus. What do you say to the to the accusation that this feels like a, a betrayal within the labor community? Yeah, a couple of responses to that. Thanks, Kyle. The um so we're in the midst of member discussions now that are happening systematically the way we do all discussions within UTLA. We're one of the most uh, democratic and open unions out there. Um, there are literally hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of counselors, social workers, campus aides, campus security of hiring people in the neighbor- neighborhood for unarmed campus security who could be hired with this budget. So this is about... Uh, safety, but safety the right way. Um, In terms of the union question, yeah, the police have an association, um, but police also have a very tense relationship within the labor movement because, frankly, police do the will of management and break strike lines and break protests and so on. And that's a long, that's a longstanding tension. What I would say is this, that um, this is the fundamental question that the Black Lives Matter movement has raised for all of us and that black students like Maya have raised for all of us. Um, why have we not chosen as a city, instead of having a school police department um, with the problems and the statistics that I outlined, why have we chosen to do that when we know it does damage to black students, instead of showering those students with counselors, love, social workers and support the way we would our own children. Which is the, the question that? that's... It's because of institutional racism I, that we've got a challenge. Institutional racism. I have to let it, I have to leave it there. It's a very interesting discussion and it certainly won't be the last word in it. We hope to continue having the conversation here on Airtalk. My thanks to both Gil Gomez, the president of the LA School Police Association, and Alex Caputo-Pearl, the president of UTLA, Maya Edwards, an activist with Students Deserve, joining us here on Airtalk to discuss the topic of of school police. We have Film Week coming your way in just a few minutes. Stay with us here on AirTalk. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome. I'm Larry Mantle. This week, our critics Amy Nicholson and Claudia Puig review Spike Lee's new movie, The Five Bloods. We're listening to its soundtrack from composer Terrence Blanchard. Lee's film tells the story of five veterans of Vietnam who go back to the country years later to search for the remains of their squad leader. Also this week, The King of Staten Island. It stars and is co-written by Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson, Judd Apatow, directs and co-wrote. The movie's partly based on on Davidson's life experiences. Disney's Artemis Fowl is a family film based on a popular series of novels. Young Ferdia Shaw stars Kenneth Branagh directs. It's Film Week on KPCC. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us with film critics Claudia Puig, the president of the L.A. Film Critics Association, and Amy Nicholson, film writer for The Guardian and host of the podcast Unspooled and the podcast miniseries Zoom. We begin this week with a brand new movie from Judd Apatow. He not only directs but co-wrote the film with its star Pete Davidson. It's based on incidents in Davidson's own life. Marissa Tomei co stars in The King of Staten Island. Amy? 
yeah, Judd Apatow's comedy template for the last decade or so has been, you know, pick a rising comic who just has radioactive amounts of talent and take their whole comedy persona and sort of shoehorn it into a semi-autobiographical story where they get to really heal their problems, you know, usually through love, kind of kind of like what he did with Amy Schumer a few years ago in Trainwreck. And it's interesting who he's picked. You know, his star of the new one who helps write it, of course, is Pete Davidson, who people might be able to picture as like the heavily tattooed skinny guy who became one of um, SNL's youngest cast in the show when he was 20 years old. And this is his loosely autobiographical story. It's the story of a kid like him who's kind of a screw up, whose dad is a firefighter who died when he was young and who is, you know, battling with some mental health challenges, and he's scared of himself. He doesn't think that he's completely stable, and he smokes too much weed, and he's a giant screw-up. And so this is a movie kind of about who he would be if he hadn't fallen into comedy, if he hadn't, you know, set sort of a, a template of his own by being one of the youngest members of Saturday Night Live when he was 20 years old. And it's interesting, because you can feel kind of a tension in this film. You know, Judd Apatow wants to make this a happy ending. You know, he wants to like have him mature and grow up and and put this kind of sweet sugary spin on things. But Pete Davidson is kind of a better comedian than that. I mean, this is really a great selling point movie for Pete Davidson as a leading man. I mean, he's really charismatic, he's really funny, and he's not a comedian that I think can get shoehorned into an easy answer happy kind of comedy, the way that Judd Apatow wants to do. And so there's a really kind of fascinating push-pull in the center of this, where Pete Davidson almost breaks out of the Judd Apatow template and makes a movie that feels interesting on its own. The King of Staten Island, new film we're talking about. Claudia, what did you think? Well, I agree with Amy. I think Pete Davidson is very charismatic. Um, And he also has this kind of sweetness and vulnerability along with kind of this edginess and even, you know, a a tad of like something obnoxious but sort of likable. Um, So he's appealing. um, And he has this very expressive face. And, you know, we have known about his public persona and his pain and his emotional trauma. Um, so I think that helps in some way inform this film, but I, f- I feel like in some ways it's kind of light and um, it kind of you know struggles to become a bromance, and I feel like it's not terribly effective in that way. But I think you know I think Amy brings up a really good point. I think that maybe he doesn't fit into this structure in the same way that Seth Rogen or some of the other people that Judd Apatow has worked with um, to sort of fit into this template. And I don't feel like this is like lightning in a bottle magic uh, that some of his other films have been, you know, they've been kind of cultural touchstones like this um, 40-year-old virgin. But I, and I I don't feel like it's as good as Funny People, which is maybe one of his more nuanced and and complex um, films. But I, you know, it's enjoyable. It's a little too long. It's 135 minutes. That's too long. There's some other good performances, but it's, you know, it does certainly show that Pete Davidson can be a star. We're talking about the comedic drama The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, who co-wrote it with the director Judd Apatow. The film's rated R, and you can see it in just about every on-demand platform imaginable. The Five Bloods is the new Spike Lee film. Lee co-wrote it, uh, directed it. Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. star. Claudia. Well, this movie could not be more timely and relevant. Um, it, it feels almost prophetic coming, at, you know, as it is right now in the midst of the uprisings that are going on and, you know, post 
George Floyd's killing. Um, so it's landed at the perfect time. And many of us are expressly looking for films about the black experience, just as we're looking for, you know, things to read about the black experience. So this, you know, navigates this inflection point. Um, and, you know, it also deals with systemic racism, but it is a look at the Vietnam War from a black perspective. And, you know, in the way that Spike Lee can kind of bring in the past and give you kind of a history lesson in an entertaining way, I think it, it succeeds that way. Um, and he brings up the fact that only 11% of the U.S. population uh, are African-American, but in Vietnam, they represented 33% of the of the troops. So, that right there is, you know, one inequity. And then um, I think it's, a, you know, then he goes into this story. It's kind of a, it flashes back and forward. We see these four guys who had been brothers together in Vietnam, and they go back to reclaim their commander's remains and also to um, find a treasure that they consider sort of reparations. It's a continuing reminder that he's a really vital filmmaker, and it's a strong follow-up to Black Klansman, which won the Best Adapted Screenplay uh, last year, 2019. I like that it's illuminating, fascinating. It's not didactic. There's some fantastic performances. Delroy Lindo is excellent. Chadwick Boseman and um, Jonathan Majors, who is in Last Black Man in San Francisco, as Delroy Lindo's son. Um, and it's it, it you know it covers so many issues that are black trauma, police violence, American imperialism. They have some references to. Uh, to Donald Trump as the president of fake bone spurs and uh, MAGA, MAGA hat is kind of a quasi-cursed uh, talisman. So it's it's very timely. To Five Bloods from Spike Lee, Amy. Yeah, it's a really fascinating film. It's almost more interesting to talk about after the fact than it is to, to watch it, if that makes sense. Because when you watch it from scene to scene, it's a film that has so much of the Spike Lee energy that it doesn't really feel like it coheres from scene to scene. And it, and it kind of shifts from a comedy to you know, very strongly hat-tipping itself to um, films like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, to Apocalypse Now, you know, to the point where a character says, you know, to the camera, you know, madness, madness. And, you know, watching it, I was sort of trying to, a little befuddled and trying to put it all together into a coherent story. And then when you take a step back, you know, it really feels like this is a film where Spike Lee is being so obvious in the in the films that he's making, tipping his hat to, that it actually doesn't, it passes through homage and turns almost into a statement about ownership, you know, saying this is my epic, this is my version of Apocalypse Now, and why haven't we had the Black experience told in its version of Apocalypse Now in the past? And, and it feels kind of like reclaiming almost Hollywood myths in the way. Like, he's very detailed, but there's even a character played by Jean Reno who shows up dressed like Belloc from, from, Raiders, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so it feels like within this story that, you know, teeters from Wild Hogs to Apocalypse Now, you're also talking about the legacy of the stories that have been put onto film and, and kind of putting your own stamp on that. And I have to absolutely agree with Claudia. Delroy Lindo is fascinating. I mean, he's really, he's just so compelling in this. He gives a few monologues straight to camera where you almost can't breathe um, because it's so, it's so tense and scary and powerful. He's always a powerful presence, whether it's film or television. Uh, we're talking about, the, you know, Charisma, B. Davidson in the last film. Lindo, to me, is one of those actors who just he has so much presence on screen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and, you know, what's interesting, too, about the way that Spike Lee does it is he gives you extra Delroy Lindo, because even though this film does take place in the past a lot, he uses the same actors, the older actors, in the flashbacks. So they, he's they're just showing up as their older versions of themselves, reliving their past. And I, and I think there's, 
interesting things to pull apart and how you don't get to move forward, how you're kind of the same person you are. But also, it is true that Delroy Lindo is so compelling in this film that the other characters fall to the side of it. To Five Bloods from director and co-screenwriter Spike Lee, Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. star. The film's rated R, and it's streaming on Netflix. The family fantasy adventure Artemis Fowl stars Ferdia Shaw, Lara McDonnell, and Josh Gad. Kenneth Branagh directs the film. Connor McPherson and Hamish McCall are the screenwriters. Amy? Yeah, this is just another gigantic, focus-tested, to death, splashy kids' effects, kids special effects movie. It just feels like very test-marketed to death and very weak and kind of a flop. Um, The story here is that Artemis Fowl is a genius, and his father, um, played by Colin Farrell, is kind of a a historian and also possibly a criminal, and he disappears. And as Artemis is a kid, his dad is always telling him about the history of goblins and dwarves and fairies. He's a magical expert and sort of an Irish historian of fantasy as well. And so he's trained his super genius kid to know everything about this underground fairy magical world, and then his dad is himself kidnapped. And Artemis Fowl has to do one of those boring old stories where he has to find a magical doohickey to save the planet and everybody's running after to get the magical doohickey back. I mean, it's, it's a strange movie because what's happening in the fairy underground is that you have all these like fairy policemen. Judy Dench is the chief of the fairy cops. There's a younger kid who's also like a fairy cop that Artemis Fell has to deal with. I mean, it's almost like if Harry Potter was about policemen, And it's just, I mean, it's weird. It feels like the longest movie on earth because you don't go anywhere. Most of the action just takes place inside of Artemis Artemis Fowl's magical house. And then um, it's told with this narration flashback from Josh Gad as this tall dwarf who wishes he was shorter, who's been arrested by the police at the very beginning. It's almost like they're trying to do, you know, um, a Kaiser Soze kind of flashback with Josh Gad. I mean, I guess if you have kids, this will kill 90 minutes. It's very hard to sit through. <laughs> I just, I mean, it's it's wild to me that there's films that supposedly have all this imagination and yet feel just as trite and rote as 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 everything else in the Disney canon lately. Artemis Fowl is streaming on Disney Plus. It's rated PG, uh, based on the novel by Owen Colfer. Artemis Fowl, Kenneth Branagh, the director. The Surrogate, a drama stars Jasmine Bachelor, uh, Chris Perfetti, and Sullivan Jones. It's written and directed by Jeremy Hirsch in a feature writing and directing uh, debut. Claudia, what do you think of The Surrogate? I like this film. It's um, a small, kind of micro-budgeted film, um, and it's really all about the performance of Jasmine Bachelor as Jess, and it's just wonderfully anchored by her performance. It's very naturalistic. The film is about a woman who agrees to be a surrogate for um, her best friend who is gay and his husband, and um, then a prenatal test comes back and the results are unexpected, and it kind of brings up some moral dilemmas for all involved, and particularly for the woman who is the surrogate. Um, So she goes through, you know, every possibility thinking about the best course of action, and she really goes through it thoroughly, and... I love that it's never moralistic. It just looks at all the angles and all the ramifications of a pregnancy where you learn there could be unexpected conditions. There's no histrionics. There's no preaching. 
it's perceptive, it's absorbing. Um, you know, there, there are no easy answers here, no easy right or wrong answers, and they don't try to make it easy. Um, and it, it kind of surprises you along the way, which is great. Um, and she is this kind of person who's always trying to please, and which is probably why she agrees to do it in the first place. Not that many people might. But, um, you know, because she is this accommodating person, you sort of see how she evolves into somebody who is more herself and kind of comes into her own and um, she just has this lived-in performance. It's great. The whole, I, I think the ensemble cast is really good. You see her growth as a character. Um, I, I just love the unexpected mm. directions and the, the lack of easy answers about this film. I think it's, it's really quite good. The surrogate, the film Claudia is telling us about. Amy, what do you think? Yeah, it is absolutely a terrific debut from Jeremy Hirsch. And Jasmine Batch- Bachelor, who plays the lead, is fantastic. I mean, this character is a really interesting portrait of a kind of optimistic do-gooding that can wind up causing a lot of problems as well. You know, Jess, Jess is so interesting. She's a person who shows up with the reusable water bottle. She's got the job at the nonprofit. And her selflessness does also come with kind of a self-righteous streak. You know, she's very idealistic and and expects a lot out of people and expects a lot of herself. I, I like movies like this where everyone involved is a good person and they're attempting to be a good communicator. And when you listen to the way they talk to each other, you know, there's more apologies for inadvertent microaggressions than there are like arguments between the characters. They're all trying to work this out. And it's also worth noting that Jess is upper middle class and she's black and that factors into when she has difficult conversations with her mother. You know, they have a really tricky conversation about her family raised her to break stereotypes about single motherhood. And so that adds this whole other dimension to the film um, if it comes to single motherhood. So I really appreciate this film. And you also do have some, um, you get to spend some time with some Down syndrome children here as actors, including a really adorable boy named Leon, who just is the cutest thing on the planet. All right. The film is The Surrogate, starring Jasmine Bachelor. It's directed and written by Jeremy Hirsch. The film's unrated. It's available on Vimeo, the on-demand platform, as well as Lemley's Virtual Cinema and the Frida Virtual Cinema. It's unrated. Coming up, we'll hear about Sometimes Always Never and the short history of The Long Road. It's Film Week on KPCC. Great to have you with us for Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, the KPCC app, kpcc.org. And, of course, it's a podcast and a highly popular one. Wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find Film Week. I'm joined this week by critics Amy Nicholson of The Guardian and the podcast Unspooled and Claudia Puig, who's the president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Our next film up is a British comedic drama, Sometimes Always Never. It's directed by Carl Hunter. Frank Cottrell Boyce is the screenwriter, and it stars Bill Nye, Sam Riley, and Alice Lowe. Amy, Sometimes Always Never. Yeah, this is a really jewel box indie dramedy portrait of a father and a son. One of those kind of comedies that teeters right on the edge of being dark and irredeemable and bitter and funny. Uh, the story here is that um, Bill Nighy and his son, Sam Riley, are really grappling with the fact that Sam Riley's brother, Bill Nighy's son, has disappeared. And they don't know what happened to him. And they're trying to find him. And the film opens with them going on this tiny road trip of sorts to... Um, to see a body that's been found and discover if it's theirs. 
the way it, it, it is about how these two people really aren't processing their emotions and communicating. And the way that they do communicate is through Scrabble. So this film is incredibly Scrabble obsessed. And if you are looking for a film that interjects stories about fathers and sons with debates about whether XI is a letter or a word, you know, the, the words like music that just keep coming up with gigantic high Scrabble counts. And um, kind of the drama is that, you know, here are people who are so good with words and good at using them and, and summing them up, but they are not able to talk at all. And they tend to disappear when things get uncomfortable. And, it, and these men of the family are all trying to use their intelligence as a way to dominate conversations and win over people and win over women. And, and you know, it's an enjoyable film. It feels kind of slight in action. But Bill Nighy himself, I mean, he's so good at skating on that edge of being a person that you hate as much as you want him to like you. And, and that's happening very strongly here. Sometimes, always, never, Claudia. Yeah, I think Alan Alan is his character. Bill Nye's character, he could be, he's the only person that could ever play this role. I mean, (laughs) believe him as this dapper tailor. Um, You know, he is uh, acerbic, but he's also, you you feel his dignity underlying and and also his uh, regret and his grief. Um, Because there's a lot of, you know, while there is, the whole Scrabble thing, and I learned some new words, which I'm very happy about. Um, and, you know, you have the sort of offbeat aspects. You also have this underlying undercurrent of heartache and grief and healing. And um, But there's, there's at the same time, you have this visual cuteness that sort of feels like an Anglo-Saxon Amelie uh, with a touch of Wes Anderson sort of sprinkled in. Um, there's this, you know, vivid, eye-catching, very color-drenched style. And then there's these... There's stylized chapters, you know, that we've seen before and conversations that are kind of filmed through archways and then, you know, painted backdrops. So it has a stylized kind of low-key eccentricity. Um, And, of course, Bill Nighy also sort of embodies sort of British low-key eccentricity. Um, So, you know, that all works. Um, and, and, And even the premise is sort of offbeat. I mean, the two, they were all playing Scrabble, and the two sons and the father argued over the legitimacy of the word Zoe, you know, which is very boring in Scrabble, and the son stormed off and never came back. Um, so, you know, there's, there's an offbeat aspect, but also a lot more depth there, and again, Nahi is just fantastic as this controlling and kind of bitingly witty guy who also, you know, kind of uses um, words to hide behind and also to sort of control, but at the same time you see sort of his emotions come through. Uh, and the rest of the performances are also really quite good. I mean, it's Bill Nye's movie, but Sam Riley, who plays the son, has a lot more notes than just kind of the son that, that is still round. Um, you know, he could just play, it could have been a one-note resentful kind of son, and it's more than that. So I think the script is also something to... To note, and then Jenny Agutter, it's nice to see her come back, and Tim McInerney have uh, smaller parts, and I think it works. I mean, it's slight, but it's, um, it's you know, it, particularly for people who enjoy British, you know, drama comedies, and how can you not love Bill Nye? Sometimes, Always, Never, directed by Carl Hunter, Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote the screenplay. It's rated PG-13, Lemley's Virtual Cinema, and the Frida Virtual Cinema to see the film. The Short History of the Long Road, a drama starring Sabrina Carpenter, Stephen Ogg, and Danny Trejo. It's written and directed by Ani Simon Kennedy. Claudia? 
Well, this is a, a little gem of a movie. It, it's played a lot of film festivals, and I think it won a special jury award at Tribeca a couple years ago, 2019. I guess that would be just last year. Um, and it's a it's a kind of a simple story about a a teenager who grows up with her father um, living out of a van. Basically, they're like these nomadic a nomadic father and daughter, and um, not because he is a loser, but more because this is kind of his philosophical approach to life, and he thinks that, um, you know, uh, it's it's not really kind of homelessness. It's more like this is what he, the the life he wants to have, a life on the open road, and um, so they crisscross the United States, and he feels like this, he's giving her the best possible education. She goes to libraries. He makes ends meet by being a um, kind of a fix-it guy, a handyman, and he relishes their independence. I'm not sure she relishes it quite as much, but um, something happens, and their rootlessness has, something changes everything. I don't want to give it too much away. Um, but suddenly she is kind of cast onto her own, and so I wish it had explored homelessness a little bit more and what it's like to be uh, sort of a teenager in, in this situation. It didn't quite do that. Um, there's some wonderful lines, though, like uh, the father will say things as, after he fixes somebody's sink. He'll say, you know, humans are a migratory species, and um, we're going back to our roots, and society will be, you know, better off once we build an army of self-sufficient agitators. And, you know, he's very anti-TV. He tells her to look out her window, and she has, you know, it's like a TV screen there. Um, so I think there's some really nice moments. It's a, it's a coming-of-age film, and then it has this great performance by Danny Trejo, who's uh, runs a... Uh, garage and they kind of bond and then um a native american actress named Jeshwan st john who's also quite good and stephen Ogg, who plays the father is excellent he reminds me a little bit of kind of peter fonda maybe it's because he's on the open road but um sabrina carpenter as the lead actress is quite good it's it's a very nice little small movie that has something to say about coming of age and about um you know how you can educate yourself in ways other than the traditional uh, you know, schooling. The Short History of the Long Road, a drama written and directed by Ani Simon-Kennedy in her feature directing debut. The movie's unrated. It's available starting Tuesday of next week on iTunes. Infamous uh, stars Bella Thorne and Jake Manley. It's written and directed by Joshua Caldwell, a crime drama. Amy? Yeah, this is the kind of movie we get Every generation or so. It's the Bonnie and Clyde of this generation. Um, we've actually already had a few of them recently this year. You know, we had Queen and Slim last year. And this is the Instagram version of that, where Instagram is to blame for everything. Uh, the story here is that Bella Thorne is from what she calls the Redneck Riviera of Florida. And she's this bored and beautiful and heavily tattooed girl who just wants to be famous. And she's from a family with really zero options. You know, her mom's not really there and her mom just rotates in a series of bad boyfriends, one in particular, um, who's there. And so when she sees this kind of blonde bad boy mechanic played by Jake Manley, who shows up in town, she sees us on this. She's like, we need to leave town. We are going to support ourselves robbing weed dispensaries as we make our way to California. And she wants to get famous. Uh, and she tries to convince him that if she Instagrams all of their robberies, that's great. And he is a little bit more logical. He's he's um, sensible, if you can be a sensible robber um, and, a, and a sensible ex-con saying, you know, this is a terrible idea. The cops are going to get us. And that's pretty much the argument of the film, you know. It, it's interesting. You know, we keep getting these stories of, like, thrill-seeking young lovers. And they don't really change as much as they just reflect what we think is the problem with the kids these days. 
And so here it feels like, you know, it's a very thin fable and that the lesson's obvious from the beginning. You know, getting online, online fame means nothing compared to your life if you're not standing for something in particular. But yet, you know, as much as I rolled my eyes at a lot of these films, um, I do have to say, you know, Bella Thorne is very committed to the part and I like her in the part. And I really think that Jake Manley has an integrity to this film that makes it a stronger film than I think it had to be. You know, he has this bleached hair and stubble. He kind of looks like a 90s Brad Pitt style, you know, that kind of dirty, greasy, shocking look. And so I appreciate this film more than I thought it was revolutionary at all. We're talking about the drama, crime drama, infamous Claudia. Yeah, I would say it definitely wasn't revolutionary. Um, you know, I, I, it's so true. We have Bonnie and Clyde, Natural Born Killers. Um, but I feel like this isn't not nearly as thought-provoking. And, and then uh, Amy mentioned Queen and Slim, which I thought was exploring far more intriguing territory. In contrast to, a, you know, a movie like The Five Bloods, this could, you know, which is so perfectly timed, this, is, this feels off timing-wise. Um, not only is it a thin story, but it's trying to make this statement about social media and young people's obsession with it and empty-headed teens. But we're actually at a time right now where young people are using their voice for positive change. And and so I feel like it's the timing is really off. It, it doesn't feel like it's of this moment. Um, it's coming off as a kind of this lightweight indictment of a generation that, that kind of does care about things. I mean, they, they, they do care about equality and climate change. And so you know, yes, there are certainly plenty of people who probably care about mindless likes and followers, and, you know, they eventually get millions of people following them in their in their crime escapade, but it feels like a little too little too late in terms of a commentary. Um, and But I do agree that Bella Thorne is very committed to the part, and Jake Manley, who's named Dean, and he's playing kind of a James Dean role, um, you know, he does a good job. Um, he has a sort of bleach-blonde guy who seems to have a, a jot more sense than she does. Um, but, you know, we know no good is ever going to come of it as we're watching. We know that eventually they're either going to be caught or, you know, they're going to be killed, one or the other. We know that they're not just going to get away with this. Um, and I, they're not particularly likable. They're not all that well-developed. Um, I think right. performances are as good as they can possibly be, given the limitations of the script. Infamous is the film, Bella Thorne, Jake Manley. It's unrated, and it's at drive-ins. You can actually see it at a theater, including the Mission Tiki, the Vineland, and the Van Buren, and it's available for at-home viewing on iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and Fandango now. Uh, Infamous is unrated. Two Minutes of Fame, a comedy starring Jay Farrow and Cat Williams, Leslie Small directed, Devon Shepard, and Yamara Taylor are the screenwriters. Amy? Yeah, we actually have uh, two comedies this week starring SNL people. Um, This one here is starring Jay Farrow as a young comedian, uh, aspiring comedian, really, who's working at a grocery store and wants to leave Birmingham, Alabama, where he has a wife and a kid for this comedy contest in Los Angeles with his best friend, who's sort of his mentor. And there's a few competing forces happening here. You know, one, this is a story about, like, people who have made it and, and haven't made it. You know, he's he's competing online making mean videos about a major black comedian who's played by Cat Williams, who he thinks has sold out a lot. He, you know, he um, makes films where he, for example, plays a black crow. And so there's this internet war between the two of them. You know, Jay making videos about how Cat Williams' comedies are a disgrace. Cat Williams fighting back and saying, like, you're just an Instagram comedian. You don't even know the training that, that people like me went through. You weren't there in the 90s working your way up, getting mentorship. Um, and I think that dynamic is pretty interesting. And I think Jay Farrow himself, 
I mean, he's a terrific mimic. I mean, he does impressions all the way throughout this film. Tracy Morgan, Kevin Hart, Jay-Z, Eddie Murphy, Obama. They are amazing impressions. Um, but yet the character himself that he's playing is kind of the worst. You know, Kiki Palmer is his wife. Um, and everything she says about like, what are you doing? You're half on her side. And, and when he, the kind of comedy he writes, the kind of comedy he performs is not that great. And so it's hard to root for this guy to succeed. I think the film, you know, sets up a lot of interesting questions and then just kind of softballs it with a happy ending. Two Minutes of Fame, comedy starring Jay Farrow and Cat Williams, Leslie Small directs. It's rated R and available starting next Tuesday, streaming on iTunes. And we've got just uh, about a minute or so to talk about the French drama Aviva, the film written and directed by Boaz Yakin. Uh, Claudia, what would you think? Well, I, I think it's intriguing. It's somewhat flawed, but I think there's it's it's fluid movie in a lot of ways. Uh, fluid in body movements. Uh, fluid in its uh, definition of gender and love. It's um, it's a dance movie and it's sexy and it's often daring. There's a lot of uh, it's impressionistic and it's it's the gender fluidity is probably the most interesting aspect. Uh, these two characters who fall in love and they're played by four different people and it alternates between male male and female actors playing them. Um, so it's trying to capture the complexity of relationships and of and the fluidity of gingers. And um, there's some beautiful dance sequences. It's uh, choreography from a former member of the Israeli dance company, Batsheva Dance Company. So I, I think there's some... I feel like the love story is not nearly as interesting. I think feel like it's uh, it's more pedestrian, but the dance and the and of course the exploration of gender is is more intriguing. Aviva is the film starring Bobby Janae Smith, written and directed by Boaz Yakin. It's unrated. It's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and the Frida Virtual Cinema. Coming up, the frames. John Horn interviews writer, director, producer Judd Apatow. Uh, they'll be talking about. The new film, The King of Staten Island, a film that brings to the forefront Saturday Night Live performer Pete Davidson. You're listening to Film Week on KPCC. Listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, I'm Larry Mantle. Director, writer, producer Judd Apatow has the new film The King of Staten Island on video on demand this week. Earlier on Film Week, our critics reviewed it. Pete Davidson stars as an aspiring tattoo artist forced to deal with the childhood trauma from the death of his father, a New York City firefighter. When Davidson's widowed mother starts dating another firefighter, it brings it to the fore. The film was slated for a theatrical release, but is moved up because of COVID-19 theater closures. The frame host John Horn called up Apatow and asked him about uh, the filmmaking team and the studio, what the conversations were like about getting it released now. I mean, for us, it's a very simple conversation. You know, we can release it in the, in the very distant future and release it in the middle of a pileup of an enormous amount of movies that have been pushed into the future. Or we can release it on video on demand now when nothing is coming out, people need content, and our film is about a family dealing with the loss of a first responder. It oddly talks about 
trauma and grieving and how a family is affected by it and gets over it. It's definitely a drama with a lot of comedy. I think the movie's very funny, but it goes deeply into those issues. And for me, I thought, I think it's appropriate for this moment that it's supposed to reach people now. And that really wasn't a business decision. It was more about, I think this is something that people should see. I want people to see it at this point, not not in the future. That decision means, and uh, at least two chains, AMC and Regal, have said going forward, they're not going to show any Universal movies. Um, do you think we're at a point now where the whole model of how movies are going to be released in the future is changing in real time, like as we're talking? I think that with changing technology, there's always a debate about distribution that is about how long are things out for? Who gets them when? How do we cut up the pie? And I'm certainly not a part of any of those discussions. I don't think our film is really at the center of it because we're not about collapsing the window. You know, we're, we're, we're either going to reach people now or we were going to in the far distant future. They're having a different debate, which is how long should a movie be in a theater before they are allowed to release it on demand or a rental or a purchase? Uh, you know, for us, we're just, we're just going straight to the people uh, because we want to. We, you know, I, I want people to have something to see, and I, I'd like them to have something that they can have an emotional connection with and to laugh and, and get a break. And that, that was the key motivation here. I spent some time with you a couple of years ago when you were testing 40-Year-Old Virgin, and you allowed me to come watch a couple of test screenings, and you were trying to figure out like how the movie was playing. It was playing great. Were there any places that you could trim? And ultimately, there weren't. But you were listening so closely to the audience and how the audience reacted as this kind of organic creature in real time to the movie and how they laughed. Now, I watched King of Staten Island in my living room with my kids and my wife. So we had a group experience, but it wasn't like the group experience that you would get with, you know, 300 strangers at the multiplex. How do you think that experience changes how a movie is received, especially a movie like King of Staten Island that has both got some very sweet moments and a lot of laughs? Well, it's certainly not the best case scenario. Obviously, we would have loved to have had the movie in theaters. That is what we'll be doing in the future. We tested the movie a bunch of times. We've watched it with people and heard where the laughs are and and you know, did our normal work, which is collaborating with the audience. What are they understanding? What are they finding funny? That's a big part of my process. And it was really fun to hear it that way. But the whole time we were making it, I always felt like this movie works really well at home. Because unlike some other movies I've made where I was just going for joke compression and how riotously funny can I make this and really trying to make the movie theater explode, this movie is much more of a dramedy. You know, it's fictional, but it's based on, you know, an experience that Pete Davidson and his family went through, which is his father was a fireman who died on 9-11. And in the story, Pete's father is a fireman who dies in a fire, not 9-11. And even though the movie is fictional, it is about everything that comes up for the family when his mom, played by Marissa Tomei, 
starts dating again for the first time since his father dies and dates another fireman. And that forces Pete's character to have to face all of the grief and everything that he's probably not dealt with. And so as a filmmaking experience, you know, it is great to share that with people, but we weren't designing it to be the explosive comedy. We were just trying to make a great movie and be true to our story. When would you feel good going back to a movie theater or a comedy club? Do you know when that might be? And what will it take for you and maybe people like you or just general consumers to return to the way it was before? Do you think that's gone? I think that it will return. And I think it'll be weird when it does return. There'll, there'll be a moment where we all can't believe any of this happened. So, you know, when uh, given the go-ahead, you know, like everybody else, I, I will try to return to to life as it was. And, you know, if there are new rules that we all have to follow for a while in this you know, transition, you know, I will follow those rules. We're talking with writer, director, and producer Judd Apatow. One of the things that is unique to Pete and his comedy is he uses the death of his father uh, and has in his stand-up, uh, he was doing a roast for Justin Bieber and told the joke, I lost my dad on 9-11 and I always regretted growing up without a dad until I met your dad, Justin. Now I'm glad mine's dead. <laughs> it's a, and that joke is pretty bold, but it got me thinking about this idea of like, at what point does something that's really tragic and horrible become fodder for comedy? And what's the timing? I mean, we're in an incredibly strange period in American and world history right now. At what point do people get permission to laugh and make fun and understand our situation through comedy? I definitely think that one of Pete's survival mechanisms was to have a very dark, hilarious sense of humor about events that happened in his life. That's how he processes it you know he, he he doesn't hide from it and i think his heart is always in a really great place even when he says the darkest possible joke about it like i think that joke is a really really funny way to talk about that and it's definitely healing comedy is healing we go right into difficult issues in comedy there's nothing in life that can't be discussed I think the audience knows where your heart is and, and people like different types of humor. Some people like very sensitive humor. Some people like humor that's very challenging. Some people love humor that's upsetting and it makes them happy. And it's a release for them to hear jokes that are truly wrong. You know, this is a, you know, a story about, you know, a young person that, that had to deal with the loss of his father and because his father was a hero, he really had a, a hard time feeling like he could serve, he could succeed in life. You know, it, it, it was a, you know, a strange part of Pete's childhood. His, his dad was someone who did something that you know, most people don't do. He made the ultimate sacrifice to help other people. And I think there's some very specific emotional uh, issues that come up when you are the child of somebody that does something so brave because you know you do wind up you know left you know without a parent and and it, it is very difficult and you know pete found 
a way to survive by becoming an artist and being creative and writing this movie. I wrote it with him and his, his writing partner, Dave Cyrus. And I, I feel like it was a real courageous act to try to express all of his feelings about it in this film and find a way to be funny while doing it. The Frame's John Horn talking with writer, director, producer Judd Apatow about his new film, The King of Staten Island. We have more conversation in just 60 seconds. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, kpcc.org, and on the KPCC app. I'm Larry Mantle. We're right amidst an interview. The frame's John Horn with Judd Apatow, the writer, director, producer. Apatow's new film, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, is on video on demand this week. Now, Apatow isn't the only member of his family in the entertainment biz. His wife, Leslie Mann's a well-known actress. His daughter, Maud, rising star as well. John asked Apatow uh, about at what point he'd feel comfortable as a parent with Maud returning to work on film productions. You know, I'm aware that the Hollywood community is trying to figure out how to keep everybody safe uh, when they return to work. Like the rest of the country, you know, we need tests that are very accurate. And as of right now, Sadly, we don't have testing in the numbers that we need. We also don't have enough information about when you're contagious. And we don't have enough information about if you can get it again, if you've already had it. And those, those issues have to be resolved before you can put groups of people onto stages in very intimate settings. And how would you start thinking about working yourself? Would you write stories that have smaller casts that don't require people going on location? What would be some practical things that you're asking yourself about how you might make your next thing, a movie, TV show? What are the kinds of things that you're considering now that maybe would have been totally foreign to bring up three months ago? I'm not sure. You know, I was thinking the other day, well, the Duplass brothers seem to be the two people who are built you know, to make incredible movies with small crews and small casts in a scrappy way. They've, they've made all sorts of amazing films, but, you know, they certainly know how to do that. And so I, I'm certainly open to learning how to make films uh, on a smaller scale. And we're all seeing comedians create comedy and sketches with no one there and no one around that are oddly hilarious. So how many people can be involved and how big the crew can be, I think also requires knowing, you know, the answers to those questions about, you know, how do you know if someone's contagious? How do you know if you can catch it again? If you've already had it, you know, when can we have a lot of testing for now? I'm doing development on a lot of scripts. I'm trying to do a lot of writing. So I will feel like I've been productive during this time and, and, and have some projects to offer, you know, when the go sign is given. Whenever that might be. I'm thinking about this movie, King of Staten Island, and it obviously had been in the works for a while. And you talked about how relevant it is to today. It's a story about grieving. It's a story about reconciliation, about people getting over past losses. And I'm wondering, 
if you think going forward, the kinds of stories that you and other people are interested in telling will change fundamentally, will we go toward a lot more escapism, more serious dramas? Is there a way to figure out how people are processing what we're in now creatively? I mean, what are the kinds of things that you're writing about? What's, what's, uh, what's on your mind? Well, I think a lot of us are just thinking, do we have to write about this? Is this something that is so important to everybody that it is the elephant in the room? And that is a really big question. Is this so dominating that it cannot be ignored in art? I remember after 9-11, a lot of people wanted you know, comfort entertainment. So suddenly they were showing Carol Burnett specials and there was a lot of you know, retro uh, event comedy specials happening. And I totally understand that when you're feeling vulnerable, you do want to connect with something that brought you a lot of joy and a lot of comfort in your life. And there's definitely a part of me that thinks, man, people are going to want something really silly in the future. But at the same time, we're also going to want to deeply explore all the feelings that came up in this moment, we're all reassessing our lives, how we spend our time, what's important to us, what are the ways that we care for other people. Because one way to look at this is it is a beautiful sacrifice. We're all doing something to help other people, to help our families, to help strangers. And it's forcing us to realize that, you know, as a world, if we don't do that, we're in trouble. We, we only survive. Because we're there for each other. We're talking with writer, director, and producer Judd Apatow. When Staten Island premieres, it's not like you're going to have box office figures reported in the trades. And obviously, there'll be some numbers. But how will people like you know if it's connecting? Because so much of how we judge a film's performance, rightly or wrongly, is based on its theatrical grosses. So is there a new way of judging how a work is connecting with an audience now? It, it's always hard to know. I had a, a stand-up special on Netflix a year and a half ago, and sometimes you could just feel it. You could just feel that people have seen it. You know, suddenly you go to a restaurant and the waiter saw it, and someone at the next table saw it. And as you move through the world, you're having conversations about it. You're seeing people talk about it online. It is a different type of experience than sitting in a movie theater with a group of people. But you definitely have this sense of, oh, people are watching this. And for other things, you really feel it like, wow, nobody's watching this. No one is mentioning you know, this movie to me. And other, other movies bubble up and, and you hear about them all the time. When, you know, this started uh, happening, I really felt that people were watching a lot of those Will Ferrell, Adam McKay movies that, that I worked on, like Step Brothers and Talladega Nights and, and Anchorman. And, and, I, and I felt good that I was a small part of them because I know sometimes when you're feeling bad, just seeing something really, really funny gets you through a hunk of your day. And I, I could sense, oh, there's a lot of people watching that. There's a lot of people talking about Superbad all of a sudden. When you're talking to comedians, fellow filmmakers, producers, writers, what are the things that they are most worried about? Is there a common theme to what they find the most stressful and what they think um, and what the kinds of things that really keep them up at night? 
I think the uncertainty is the most difficult part. And that's true for every business in the country. Just not being able to plan. I think if people even had any sense of here's what the next three months, six months, a year look like, uh, they would be able to organize their minds, especially as creative people. A lot of the work is being in a solid enough space with your mental health that you can be creative and be imaginative. And, you know, that uncertainty certainly can slow you down. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, it turns into anxiety and depression and, and that's not great for creativity either. So that's probably the, the most difficult part. And we're all trying to trick ourselves into being in a better place to do some creative work. I know if I don't watch news after dinner time and I don't watch it first thing in the morning, I can trick myself into not thinking about what's happening and I might be able to disappear into my imagination and create something and write some jokes. But I, I do have to be disciplined about tuning out for a period to get into that space. Judd, thanks for sharing your time with us. Absolutely. Take care. Writer, director, producer Judd Apatow talking with the frame host John Horn right here on Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Again, Apatow's new film, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, is out on video on demand. For all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend, and we remind you to join us Monday morning at 10 for Air Talk on KPCC.